Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Allison. And good morning, church family. Uh, And what a rich time that we have had in in God's word already as we've read it and sung it, sung the gospel, prayed the gospel. Uh, My heart is already full. I trust that yours is as well. Lately, I've been uh, reading actually several books right now, but one that has... uh, uh, been a slow read, and, and just because of its uh, nature and, and content, it's, it's a heavy one. Um, and it's written by uh, church historian Carl Truman. And the book is entitled, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in this book, he, he, he opens up his whole conversation with a particular statement which which in previous generations would have been incoherent, but today is not only coherent, but meaningful. And here's the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He takes that statement, which today makes sense to us in some sense. It's a seemingly coherent statement in our culture, but yet Just a generation ago, I would even look back in my own life and say, growing up, if someone had said that, that would make absolutely no sense. And the aim of the book is, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where a sentence like that is not only coherent, but seems to have meaning? 
And to get to this place, not only has society undergone a shift in what it means to be a person, that's what's gone on, but it's also been a shift in what it truly means to be a self, what it truly means to be a person. Uh, we've come to the place where our true self, our true identity, that's kind of the language I think we use, of who we are is now determined by our sexual desires. And, and where Truman kind of takes us is he starts with the 18th century and the French Revolution and the ideas that were birthed all the way through there and traces them and shows us and how we didn't get here by accident. Con ideas have consequences. And in particularly, this idea that I am my sexual desires. You know where that came from? That came from Sigmund Freud. You might know that name. It's one of those names that you've heard of, but you've never actually read anything about, right? It's one of those people. But here was Sigmund Freud's M.O. And namely, he was responsible for making plausible the idea that humans from infancy onward are at their core sexual beings. He, he was seeking to answer the question, what is the essence of who we are? And he came to the conclusion, our sexual desires. That is who our true self is. So that idea has now birthed, right? That, that idea has been sown. And, and so today, we not only see merely an expansion of what is deemed to be acceptable behavior, but we've gone even beyond that to, to now we are moving to a place where we want to abolish any boundaries of what is acceptable. All things are acceptable, right? And why is that? How can we get to a place? And, and how is it? I mean, we just came through a horrendous political season. And we're still going to deal with these things. And why is it that all these matters of race, justice, and sexuality just seem to be so interwoven? Even down to our economics, every policy, it seems to now be interwoven. Well, it's these ideas that have come to roost, if you will. Because if you have any sort of boundary... Outside of this, my desire, my individual desire, well, then you are denying people their rights. You get that? It's why this is such a volatile issue for us today. And yet, when we come to the scriptures, and particularly this morning in the teaching of Jesus, we learn that our identity is not wrapped up in our sexuality. Jesus actually says, no, that's not who you, your true self is. That's not where you find your identity. That's not where you find your value. Pastor Chris picked all these songs not having a clue where I was going today. That's all we just sang. My, my worth, my value is found at the cross. My, my identity is found in Christ. And this is what Jesus is helping us see here. And we learn that our identity is not found in our sexuality. In fact, Jesus teaches us that our identity is not wrapped up in anything else other than him. And for this reason, even as we sang, Jesus, I thy cross have taken. 
all to leave and follow thee. What does Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, what? Deny self. (laughs) Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me. Apostle Paul understood this. You know that famous passage in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And the life I now live in the flesh, this life that I live in my, my flesh and bones, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen? That's our life. To live as Christ, right? To die is gain. However, to find our identity in Christ is not to suggest in any way that Jesus is indifferent, though, to our sexuality. It's not that we are androgynous people, that we no longer have any sense of maleness, femaleness, and, and sexual desire all just disappears. No. It's not to suggest that Jesus is indifferent to these things. Rather, what this does, it frees us to understand that God says, no matter who we are, what we've done, the world and our passions don't define who we are. We're his children. We're made in his image to find everlasting joy in relationship with him. And so as we come to Matthew 19, Jesus presents to us, if you will, his sexual ethic. That's what's going on here. He's dealing with the controversies of the day. He's being asked. He's being put on the spot. And just as these things are controversial now, they were controversial then. There's just maybe more categories of things to think about. This is his sexual ethic. And though it is brief, I mean, if you look at it, it's really just 3 through 12. And you might say there's really not much here. But if when we dive in, there are layers upon layers upon layers of wisdom. I was even telling Sarah last night, I, I, I think I would want to come back to this text at some point in a later time to address specific matters because we could take a specific issue that's facing us in our culture or even in our own lives, come to this text and, 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 and gain application and wisdom directly to that issue. But tonight or this morning, I'm not going to be able to maybe handle all the fine details of every scenario We're going to look at these categories as Jesus puts them in, but I hope you'll begin to see there's much wisdom in Christ. In fact, all the wisdom and treasures of God reside in him. So we see here it's filled with wisdom, layers of wisdom for following God's will for our lives. And by submitting ourselves to Jesus' word here this morning, here's what I want us to see. We're going to learn how to properly I hope enjoy Christ as he has called us and be able to invite others into that joy through faith in him. And so to this end, I want us to see God's perfect will for marriage, God's permitted will for divorce, and God's dignified will for celibacy. Okay? Big categories right there. I know. A lot to cover. That's where we're going to find ourselves. Let's look at the first one. God's perfect will for marriage. Matthew tells us that after Jesus had finished these sayings, you see verse 1, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of 
Judea. What are these sayings that Jesus has just finished? Well, this is chapter 16 through 18. That was a, a body of teaching, almost similar to the Sermon on the Mount, a, a section that was filled with Jesus' teaching, and particularly life in the covenant community. Jesus has taught us how to relate to one another in the church, if you will. And he has comforted us that, that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell, death cannot prevail against it. It will not fail, even when we sin against each other. God has made provision for how do we handle trials in the life of the church. So he's finished these sayings, and now he leaves Galilee and enters the region of Judea. And what's Matthew signaling for us? Jesus' path is making a turn. Now he's headed to Jerusalem. And, and notice, we, we're, we're in chapter 19. We're, believe it or not, we're almost to the end. <laughs> Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen is he's going to face op opposition. It's just going to keep increasing. And that's exactly what we find here in this text. He leaves Galilee. And in fact, this, this might be interesting. This is the last time he's in Galilee until he's resurrected. And he tells the disciples, I'll meet you there. This is the last time. He's headed toward the cross. And so it's no surprise then that as he gets closer to Jerusalem, he enters the region of Judea, he's immediately faced with opposition. Specifically, the Pharisees approach him in order to test him. You see that in verse 3? And the Pharisees came to him and tested him. That, that word tested is tempt. And what are they doing? They are doing exactly what their father, the devil, did to Jesus in the wilderness. He came to test him. Those are the only people who test Jesus, Satan and the religious leaders. And what Matthew's trying to say is they're on the same team, okay? They're doing the same things. And their question for him was this. All right, Jesus, tell us, is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? No controversy here at all, right? That's an easy question. There actually were two... Uh, schools of thought going on in the day, the kind of debate, if you will, in Israel. There's one school, a more conservative school, that believed that divorce was permissible if a husband discovers that his wife has been maritally unfaithful prior to the marriage or within the marriage. Some even went so far to, to say that, that if this sin was discovered, this indecency, if you will, that the man was not only permitted to divorce, but was commanded to divorce. That was a really strict reading of that. Another school of thought, and was likely more mainstream, and as we're going to see, it was shared by these Pharisees, taught that divorce was permissible, or even commanded, if the husband finds any flaw in his wife, anything that doesn't satisfy him. And there's one notable um, example of this in, in a rabbinic document. And there's lots of rabbinic documents trying to, to, to come up with rules and scenarios to explain the scriptures, and here's how you to live. And, and one of them writes this, that a man may divorce his wife even if she spoils his dish. You burnt my dinner. We're done. 
So this is a hot topic in the day. Just imagine the volatility that we have on these issues. Just plug in the controversial question. Is it permissible for a man to marry a man? Is it permissible for a woman to marry a woman? And, and it goes on and on. Okay? It's the question. And it's going to become evident that the Pharisees take the latter view. They think anything's permissible. And they base it on an incorrect reading of, of Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 24. And, and Jesus knows this, and so he goes to the heart of God's instruction. He goes to the heart of the law, God's true intent from the beginning. And, and we see here that in, in verses uh, 4 and 5, Jesus quotes Genesis. He goes back to Genesis 1.27. He goes back to Genesis 2.24. And let's just read this. He, he says, verse 4, have you not read? Now, let's just stop here. When there are matters of dispute, things going on, let it not be said of us that Jesus would say, have you not read? Because you didn't take the time to read and listen, but you've developed an idea on your own. May this not be said of us. Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them, what, male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus says, if you truly want to understand God's view on divorce, what he thinks about it, you have to understand his perfect will for marriage. You have to go to the beginning. Jesus says that twice here. From the beginning. From the beginning. And this is interesting because some, sometimes we, we go to the beginning. We go to Genesis. doesn't say anything about divorce, does it? doesn't say anything about the sexual controversies of our day. And I hear it all the time. You're reading into Genesis. That's not what Moses intended. But guess what? We find Jesus doing that. He takes the issue of the day and he looks at the original design and he finds meaning in it. Specific meaning. It's not just general. Jesus does this. Paul does this. Actually, all the apostles do this. And teach us how we go back to the beginning and we see God's perfect will for marriage. So it's a misnomer when when conservatives are told that they're reading into Genesis these things. Take it up with Jesus. So Jesus says, if you want to understand what God thinks about divorce, you need to start at the beginning. And so from the lips of Jesus, we, we hear of the origin, the purpose, and permanence of the marriage covenant. First, we learn that marriage was created by God himself. And he sets the terms, doesn't he? And marriage is to be between one man and one woman. That's what it was from the beginning. That's the terms. And secondly, it teaches us what makes a marriage. Have you ever wondered that? What, what makes a marriage? And what we see here is that marriage is not merely sexual intercourse. That's not the essence of it. It's a part of it. It's not the essence of it. 
And some have erroneously taught this, that if a, if a man and a woman, you know, get together, well, they're married. No, that doesn't mean you're married. That means you're fornicators. That's what it means, okay? That's not what the essence of marriage is. That's not what the Bible teaches. And marriage, as we see here, is actually a commitment. It's a, it's a covenant. The Bible opens up with a wedding. And sexual, or sexual intercourse is the consummation of the covenant. And so this is what is meant by leaving and cleaving, becoming one flesh. Leaving one's mother and father is not breaking all relationship with them. It's not what he means there. In fact, we, we, we balance in the scriptures what leaving and cleaving means and the continual command to honor your mother and father. Yeah, there's, there's a difference from when you were a child living in a home, but that doesn't mean a wholesale rejection of them. You still honor them. You still respect them. But what Jesus is pointing out here is, is that no longer is that parental relationship primary in your life. There's a new family union that has now been created by God and the marriage bond. There's a new union where the two, Jesus says, now become one. Now, that doesn't mean that you've somehow fused and now you got two heads and there's like, you know, this person walking around. That's not what he's talking about, obviously, right? But there is a genuine union now between these people. There's no separating them. They're one flesh. In this new union, now the husband and wife commit themselves to one another before God. And it becomes their primary relationship in their life. I sometimes hear people say, you know, my best friend, and they're talking about somebody who's not their spouse. And I don't think they mean this, but that, that's not your best friend. You don't have best friends anymore. Your wife, your husband is your best friend. Now, it might not be true, but it should be true. You have moved on. That doesn't mean you don't have friends. They're now truncated. It's a different relationship. That's why, guys, you... You know, hanging out all on weekends. I hang out with my guys every weekend. No, you don't. Doesn't mean you don't ever hang out. But you are now with your wife and, and wives. This doesn't mean, you know, I'm always hanging out with my girls. I got to get my girl time. No, that, that, those days are over in some sense. Many temptations have come when those who've decided to keep living as if they're not one flesh. Much could be said, like I said. Here's what marriage is. Marriage is the wholesale commitment between a husband and a wife that I will give you all of me. I will give you all of me. My love, my affection, my respect, my, my protection, my assets, my interests. I yield everything to you. In essence, my life is inseparable from yours and vice versa. The two are now one. And this covenant commitment before God is then consummated through the sexual union. Sex is merely an expression of a greater union reality. It's just one expression of it. But we're together in oneness of mind, oneness of purpose. Oneness in, in finances, oneness in essence, assets, oneness in all that we're doing. And then finally, Jesus says, what God has joined together, this is interesting. 
Jesus is recognizing that when people come together in marriage, God joined that marriage together. Did you see that? What God has joined together, let not man separate. God has brought this union about. And you might say, well, what if it was, you know, they rushed into the marriage, they got all these things? God's providence. God's providence. You ever wonder, oh, I married the wrong person. Wrong. Wrong. You did. Let not man separate. And so, in other words, from the beginning, God's purpose in marriage was that it would be an unbreakable bond between a husband and his wife for their joy and their good. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is that divorce has never been part of God's plan. It's not part of his design. Divorce is the destruction of God's design. It's the breaking of God's perfect will for his creatures. So if divorce is not God's plan and it's against his will, then why does he allow it? That was the the question of the Pharisees. That's what they come back to. You see that in verse 7. And so they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So here we come into God's permitted will for divorce. I mean, it comes explicit here that they are borrowing from Deuteronomy 24, what Moses said about divorce. And and we don't have time to go there. I would encourage you to write Deuteronomy 24 and read where there's lots of stipulations on divorce in the covenant community. And specifically, Moses talks about a scenario where a a man finds and discovers indecency in his wife, some sense of... uh, um, prior to the marriage or within the marriage, she's been unfaithful. He files for divorce. And you're to give her a certificate that, that shows that she's, in some sense, free. And then the scenario is she marries another, and, and either through death or another divorce, he, he says, but you can't remarry her again after she's married another person. There's lots of details, and and like I said, there's layers of things to go and explore in that text. But the point being is, Moses is, in essence, regulating it, limiting it in some ways. He's not promoting it, let alone commanding it, as the Pharisees say here. He's not commanding them to to divorce. He's, He's giving restrictions around it. And Jesus says, Moses only permitted, he corrects them, only allowed this because of your hardness of heart. What's he saying? Because your sinfulness, your wickedness. And so this raises an important question for us to see. Because what are the grounds of divorce, right? It's one of the questions that we often wrestle with. And Jesus, similar to Moses, permits it but only on the grounds of sexual morality. And I I think that's what Moses is saying, some indecency. That's what he's talking about, but they had spread that, some indecency, to anything I don't like. Jesus is, like in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's given the right understanding here, okay? Which I think is helpful. There's a lot of debate in, in, in 
especially in Christian circles, and I know I've, some of you are wrestling with this, and this can be more personal to some than to others. You know, does God uh, allow divorce? And then does he allow remarriage after divorce? Well, Deuteronomy 24 assumes it is permitted and that remarriage will happen. This is all within that context. And so while there are some debates, what, what does the, that exception clause really mean? I think it loses uh, sight of the, the bigger picture in the context that this is already presuming upon the law which allows remarriage. And we're going to get there. Notice Jesus does not require divorce on the ground of sexual immorality. Rather, he permits it. He, he permits it. Now, what is he, what is he doing? This is interesting. I don't think it's an accident that Matthew brings this up right after an extensive section of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation. This isn't an accident. Here's a prime example of where real hurts happen, real sin is committed. You can forgive and you can reconcile if you know Christ. But he says there are cases, in this case sexual immorality, where it can be permitted. And I think there's lots of wisdom to go in, and, this, and I'm going to look at this a little bit in Paul's letter, because this isn't to be done hastily. He leaves room for forgiveness and reconciliation. In other words, Jesus presents divorce as a last resort. And only when such sin is not repented of, and I think we should be thinking of, I'm trying to gain my brother, my sister. I'm treating them like a wayward sheep, and it just happens to be my spouse. And I'm going to use all God's resources to win them back. That should be in the back of our mind before it's like, oh, sorry, you failed, I'm out. <laughs> Ejection button. Whew. Glad I got out of that one. You know, that, that's what the Pharisee's attitude was. If we can find some indecency, I'm tired of this woman. I can get out of it. And Jesus says, that's, that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of the people of God. That's not the values of the kingdom. And so when, only when such sin is not repented of and effectively breaks the marriage covenant. And when this occurs, divorce is permitted, but it's not blessed. This isn't a, yay, this was great. Glad you all worked out your differences and came to realize you couldn't do it anymore. No, this is terrible. And this raises an important question. Is sexual morality the only ground for divorce? And I think this is where we have to go elsewhere to kind of bring more scripture to bear. And the Apostle Paul says something very similar he, uh, when addressing this matter in the Church of Corinth. And, and Jim McAllister read this for us at our pastoral uh, prayer time, asking lots of questions. And in fact, they say something very similar to what the disciples, maybe it's just better not to marry at all, <laughs> and, and, or not to have a woman, not to have a spouse. And, and Paul says, well, it's more complicated than that. You've got to work through some things. Now, obviously, I don't have time to preach all of 2 Corinthians 7, but I think there's some things that would be helpful. So I encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 7, and let's pick up in verse 10, where Paul brings up divorce. 
And as you're turning there, here's what I want you to understand. Paul, and this is what's behind the I say, not the Lord. This isn't like, hey, this stuff's optional, but the stuff that the Lord says isn't. What he's talking about is, these are the things that the Lord, I'm, I'm helping you understand what Jesus taught on these things. And this is what Jesus explicitly said. Now, I'm bringing my apostolic authority and inspiration to bear. So when you see him bouncing back and forth, I say this, but not the Lord. This isn't like, okay, this is optional. Okay? It's still the word of the Lord. And so he comes here in verse 10 of chapter 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. It's as if he knows what Jesus has taught about forgiveness and reconciliation. You see that? And the husband should not divorce his wife. The same principle. This is different than in the Jewish world. The wives couldn't do that. But Paul's understanding both made in the image of God, both are culpable, and he speaks to both spouses. And so he understands that if one divorces their spouse, they should reconcile that relationship or remain unmarried. But then he addresses another matter. What if you're the innocent party? You've tried, you, you've been the one in Matthew 18 who's gone to your spouse and they wouldn't listen to you. You've brought two or three witnesses and they wouldn't listen to you. You've brought it to the church and they wouldn't listen to it. What, what, do, you, what do you do? And he goes on, he says in verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. There's a sanctifying effect even when there's one believer in the household. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is. They are holy. Now, here's, here's the point I want to draw out. But if the unbelieving partner separates, divorces you, or wants out, for whatever reason, they're showing they don't know Christ. Let it be so. There's a point in which you stop fighting. You, you don't try to get back at them. You can, you can let them go. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, he says. Talk about the innocent party. In such cases, when you're the innocent party, you aren't enslaved to what? The marriage. The marriage covenant. So if the guilty party leaves and you're not, bound, you're not bound by the marriage covenant, you're free, I think the implication is here, in light of Deuteronomy 24, Jesus' teaching, and now here, the assumption is you're free to remarry. But I think with caution. I think there's something instructive to, to see here that, that wouldn't have been nice, Paul, why didn't you just go ahead and say it? I can remarry. And perhaps... Paul was thinking this, perhaps it was just the Holy Spirit. It wasn't, it's implied. It's not something to rush into. Because there's a sense in which once you remarry, there's, 
there's a, a limit to what reconciliation could happen out of a divorce. There is. And so this freedom, I think, is implied, but it's not explicit. Because I don't think remarriage should be taken lightly. Paul even says, you know, to those of you who've experienced this or even been widowed, I think it's better that you're made single, he says. But not by command. But there's, so there seems to be, you need to think through this carefully and get wisdom, and this isn't a solo decision in your life. At least it shouldn't be. Now that Paul allows, I, I think here, um, divorce for kind of a second reason, abandonment. Seems that he's gone beyond what Jesus said, right? Sexual morality. And I think this is where he's getting at. What Paul means when he says, I say, but not the Lord. It isn't his opinion that you can take or leave, but it's him un- helping you understand what Jesus' teaching applies in a real-life situation in Corinth. He's applying it now. And really, if you think about it, abandonment is not much different than the exception clause Jesus gave in Matthew 19. There are differences, but it's, it's not completely different. Both effectively express the severing of the marriage covenant, right? Unrepentant sexual sin. You, you're leaving. You've united to another. In whatever form it takes. And abandonment typically is done that way, right? That's usually what it is. Now, maybe there are other scenarios where abandonment can take place. But it's when persistent sin of the one dissolves the marriage. And that's what most divorces result from. So divorce is permitted, we see, for the innocent party when the guilty party dissolves the marriage covenant by their unrepentant sin. Two, remarriage is cautiously permitted for the innocent party. And three, the guilty party should not remarry lest they commit adultery, Jesus says. But rather, they should repent of their sin and reconcile to their spouse. And you might be saying, that is really radical. Yep, it is in our world. But when we come to Christ and we know the forgiveness of the gospel and we know what it means to repent of our sins, our value system changes. And we are now striving and longing for Eden as it was from the beginning, Jesus said. And when the disciples heard this answer, they understood its implications. This is messy, right? It is messy. There's a lot going on here. And so let's, let's come back to our text. And so the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Goodness. <laughs> if that's what's going to be involved, I'm locked. I mean, it seems that they are just sitting there saying, if I'm locked in forever, better not get involved, right? That's what they seem to be saying. <laughs> they obviously don't understand the joys of marriage. But Jesus turns to the discussion. He takes this statement. I'm guessing this is Peter, who, by the way, does get married. Paul tells us he, keep, he takes a believing wife with him on his ministry. But Jesus turns to the discussion to present God's dignified will for celibacy. I think there's much encouragement. This is, there's layers of wisdom here. 
but I'm just going to try and help us see it from a bird's eye view. Jesus says the life of celibacy is not for everyone. You see? See that? He says, not everyone, verse 11, can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. That, he's, he's referring to the statement, it's better not to marry. He's not talking about his stipulations on marriage and divorce. Hey, not everybody can receive it. That'd be just contradicted himself. I just gave you these rules, but you know, not everybody can receive it, so take it or leave it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about now this issue of it's better, maybe I just shouldn't marry. Because not everybody can do that. Not everybody can do that. And what is he getting at? He says, to only those whom is getting given to. This is interesting because this same language of giving and, and being able to receive is similar to when Jesus was talking about the mystery of the kingdom. He says, to only those whom it has been given can they have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so what is Jesus saying? There's a sovereign purpose going on. There's the gift of salvation to be able to see the kingdom, hear the message of the kingdom. But Jesus even says that God is even sovereign over the gift of celibacy. That's what he's getting at. Not everybody has this gift. God's sovereign over people's singleness. And this is encouraging because the world tells you that your identity is found in your ability to express your sexual passions, right? I've never seen this movie, but this, this, is, this is the message of the world. There's, there's a movie, Steve Carell, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Never seen the movie. But here's what I do know about it based on its cover and its title. It's a comedy. That you must be the biggest loser on the planet if you're 40 and you haven't had a woman. You don't have value. That's the world's message. That's the world's. And Jesus says, that's not true. That's not true. And so as a follower of Christ, we can find rest because our identity and basis of acceptance, guess what? Is it determined on your marriage status? This is groundbreaking New covenant promises. There's an Isaiah of the promise of where the eunuch will be able to now come into the assembly of the Lord. They're going to be welcome. And so Jesus turns to this social group of a eunuch to make this point. Eunuchs, what are eunuchs? Get out your study Bible, maybe. Um, eunuchs were a class of people who could not marry. Why? Because they've been castrated. Okay, that's, that's the bottom line. And Jesus says for some, this is due to a birth defect. You see that? There are some who have been so from birth, and he's saying there's birth defects that are natural. There's going to be things where some individuals are born in a way that it's going to affect their ability to marry. They're effectively eunuchs. I'm mindful of when uh, Moses was complaining to God and said, uh, when God told him, you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he says, God, I'm not a good speaker. You know what God said? Who is it who makes man deaf or mute? Is it not I? God's even sovereign over these things. Another sermon I encourage you to listen to on the problem of evil. But I can't go there. Jesus goes on. He says, for others, 
it is done to them. And there are eunuchs who've been made themselves, or there are eunuchs who've been made by men eunuchs. And typically, this would have happened when you were a captive of war. Young boys in particular were made eunuchs and brought into the king's court. Uh, go to Daniel chapter 1. Guess who brings in Daniel and his friends? The chief eunuch. Chances are that's what happened to these guys. And why do they do it? They bring you into the king's court to ensure that you're loyal to the king and you would not be distracted by his beautiful harems. That's what was happening. And then there, Jesus says, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And I think here, Jesus is kind of playing on this category and telling us I'm expanding it. He's not advocating self-castration. What's he getting at? Well, in the first two examples, he recognizes that some individuals are effectively in the social class of a eunuch. We, we would say they're single. And this has happened either by birth, they're born with a disability of some sort. It's pretty much eliminated marriage. And then there's others, things have been done to them. Consequences or life experience that, that is going to prevent marriage. There's two outside forces, if you will. The first two categories, outside forces, keep one from marriage. And what Jesus is saying is that either way, God was sovereign over that in their life. And some of you need to be reminded of that. God's sovereign over your life. This isn't just true for you, it's true for all of us. God's providential in your life. And because your identity is not found in marriage, you can be faithful and a servant in his kingdom. And you have value. You're not a second-class citizen. Even though I've talked to some of you who are single, and you've told, hey, it's tough being in this church because there are lots of married people, lots of babies, and it is the norm. It is. And I know it's tough. And this is why Jesus gives us this text to remind us. And the we who are married need to remind, hey, there isn't something wrong with them if <laughs> they don't have a spouse necessarily. God's sovereign over this. But Jesus also speaks of those who choose this life for themselves. There's a celibacy that Jesus gets to here, specifically for kingdom service, and it's a gift as well. Paul mentions it back in 1 Corinthians 7. There's so many overlaps right here. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own what? Gift from God. There's a gift of celibacy which frees some individuals for greater kingdom ministry. And there have been many men and women in the faith who have done great things to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and serve the church in a way those of us who are married cannot do. And they've been greatly used. And we can begin with Jesus and Paul. Great work for the kingdom. Today, or not yet today, it was the other day I was listening to a conversation between two pastors and, and, uh, and one is uh, single. And uh, he has the gift of singleness. And he was talking about that. And, and he calls it 
a churchly singleness. And this is what he means by it. He gives four kind of criteria, and I've got these up on the, the board or the screens. Number one, it's by choice. What, what is this third category? Those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, it's first of all by choice. It's not by an outside force. Oh, I've never found somebody. I really wanted one. I guess I have the gift. No. It's by choice. I desire it. Number two, it's for life. It's for life. You might say, okay, that's a little too crazy here. Not if you have the gift. Not if you have the gift. And, and it was interesting in the conversation, it was like, have you ever left the door open? What if God changes your mind? So there was a season in my life that, that, um, that my, I think it was a sister, had uh, in their will made me have uh, rights over the children in case he, uh, her and her husband passed away. And I thought, you know what? have the desire. I've made this choice, but you know what, Lord, I'll leave the door open in case that scenario could happen because I think the kids would need a, a mother. He says, well, that's long gone. I mean, this brother's now probably in his late 60s, 70s. He goes, they don't, that, that, that door's closed. And, and he goes, I would drive me bonkers. I, I would be constantly, every woman who came into my life, Lord, what are you trying to say? Am I supposed to marry her? Huh? 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 Because I can't live like that. It's for life. Number three, it's unto Christ. It's not to make more money, to live the so-called bachelor life or bachelorette life. This isn't for yourself. It's, not, it's for Christ. It's to serve Jesus to the best of your ability. And then fourthly, he says it's within community. This isn't to be a monk or a hermit who withdraws from life and society. No, this is for full devotion in the church. Some of you are thinking, how do I know if I have this gift? Some of you are really scared. Oh, my word. No, Lord, please. No, not this gift. How do you know? Well, first of all, if that's you freaking out, you don't have the gift. You don't have it. You're not in this third category. Okay? It's as if it's similar. Paul says, if you burn with passion, it's better to marry. That's what he's getting at. You don't have the gift. So what do you do if you want a spouse, but you, you can't? Or you haven't been able to find one? Everyone you thought you found, they haven't thought the same. There's outside forces, maybe. Whether by birth, by life circumstance, you haven't been able to marry. What do you do? Here's what I want you to know. Your, your father's a good father. And you can share that burden with him. He knows how to give good gifts to his children who ask. A father, if his son asked for an egg, we'd give him a snake or ask for a loaf of bread and give him a rock. How much more will our Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to his children when they ask? And so we share that burden with him. And, and, and maybe the reason you don't have a spouse is because you haven't asked. James reminds us, you don't have because you didn't ask. And, and some things God intends for us to pray so that we wouldn't think that we accomplished that on our own. But some of you are saying, I've been praying. <laughs> I've been praying for weeks. 
Some of you have been praying for years, maybe decades. And the Lord hasn't done that. What do you do? Until that day, you pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. Because why? Because my identity is not in my marriage status. My fulfillment is not going to be in a spouse. At the end of the day, your spouse is not your fulfillment. Your value is not determined by your singleness. And what do you do? You serve him the best of your ability. For some of you, it's going to be a season, and you need to maximize this season. I mean, there are times, I can tell you, I've had these conversations, um, usually with guys who are not married, and they're zealous, they see great missionary work, and, and they're like, they look at married people, and they even look at me as a pastor, and why aren't you like inviting homeless people into your home and, and just, you know, just giving everything you have? And I was like, because Paul says people like me have to worry about worldly things, such as caring for a wife and, a, and children. And he wouldn't say in a derogatory term, I have other responsibilities. That's why Paul says, I wish some of you were like me. Because you can. You can. Some of you are in a season of life where you're going to be able to do great ministry. I think about our, some of our missionaries have gone off. We sent out Caitlin and, and Katie. They're able to do this freely. Maybe it's a season. Maybe it's a life. I don't know. But they're able to do what some of us can't do. And that's about God's design. And so whatever the season, even if it's not your choice, you're in category one or two. You serve him to the best of your ability, taking on the cross that Jesus has given you, denying yourself and following him. And if he decides to bring you a spouse, rejoice in that. But if he doesn't, you can rest assured that you're not some second-class citizen and that you are loved and that he has a purpose for you. This is contrary to the world's values, isn't it? Totally different than what the world says, right? It says that you are no one unless you can satisfy your passions. But Jesus teaches us that there's a better way to live in the world, a greater purpose in our lives. And even if your life has been wrecked, listen here. Some of you, your life has been wrecked by sexual sin. Done to you or you have indulged in, you've, you've experienced divorce, you've experienced adultery, and Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest, and those things do not define you. I will give you a new identity in me. If you place your faith and trust in the work that I have done for you on the cross, I died to cleanse you of all your sin, to cover all your shame and to raise you in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news of the gospel that brings comfort to our souls but also lets us go to the world who is vastly confused and bring them genuine hope and meaning in life, right? Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Jesus, I pray that as we've come here, and, and, and you know we've only scratched the surface of, of all the scenarios, all the wisdom that 
your word would apply to us in various situations. But Lord, I pray that wherever we are, whether we're in the married camp, the divorced camp, the celibate camp, may we submit our lives to your will, understanding that ultimately your will for us is our sanctification, our holiness. And so, Lord, I pray for those here you've gifted with marriage, that they would properly enjoy the gift, but they would have it in its right place. It would not be their idol. It would not be their ultimate joy, their ultimate fulfillment, their ultimate identity, but rather they would enjoy it properly, giving thanks to you, seeing that it points to a greater marriage in Christ. Lord, I pray you would guard our marriages from the sins of adultery and divorce. I pray that you would produce in us the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of forgiveness and reconciliation. Yet for those who have experienced great heartache and pain because sin has wrecked their marriage, I pray that you would comfort them today. Comfort them with these truths. Comfort them with your love and kindness. And may they walk humbly in obedience to your word moving forward. And finally, for those who may long for a spouse, but you have yet to give them one. I pray that they would find their fulfillment and joy ultimately in you, even as they ask and they seek for a spouse. But in the meantime, may they use this season of singleness for greater kingdom service. And then, Lord, I pray that maybe today your word has spoken to some here. You've helped them see that you've given them the gift of celibacy for a lifelong ministry to take the good news of Christ where those of us who are married cannot. Lord, would you raise up among us zealous, faithful servants who can go where some of us can't go so that more could join your church and find their identity in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.